0: You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. As-salamu Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show here live on Voice of Islam Radio Station. Uh, you're here with myself, uh, Talib Man, and Imam Rana Atta, um, and. You know, as usual, Rana, we, we you know, deal with two subjects. Actually, before we go into two subjects, I haven't seen you for a while. How are you?
1: I haven't seen you for a while. I mean, <laughs> I'm fine. How are you? Uh,
0: yeah, uh, I've acclimatized somewhat, yeah. right? Because I've come back from Hong Kong and it's been a couple of weeks now. But unfortunately, I I came back when we had that pretty cold spell. So for me it felt like i was coming into arctic type of temperatures mm. and you can tell i've got still got a bit of a uh, a cold uh, lingering because uh, i think the current temperature is about 16 17 degrees in hong kong yeah. but it just feels so much colder here but that's the thing
1: the, the thing is we were discussing this the last time i was here as well i just feel that this um winter so far has been a lot more easier as compared yeah. to the previous year and yeah it's you know it's it's surprising I, you usually you know what's the signifier it's your when you wake up in the morning and you see the frost on your on your windscreens right and that frost hasn't true hasn't been there as much So yeah, yeah, yeah. you know for me i believe that this has actually been a a, mild, much, a much more pleasant sort yeah. of uh winter so far and i i hope
0: it stays that way yeah a bit wet though a bit wet but yeah, you mean, know we can't have everything i suppose it is exactly <laughs>
1: you can't have everything.
0: yeah given the cost of uh the cost of living crisis and the fuel bills <laughs> yeah. it's supposed to be the best thing but uh yeah. We normally deal with uh, two subjects in our two-hour slot here from four till six. So what have we got uh, for today's show, Rana? So in the first hour,
1: uh, we will be discussing uh, immigration, migration, um, and I guess the refugee cl- crisis, will, mm-hmm. all of that will tie into this uh, first hour, uh, questions surrounding that, and um, are you going to ask me what we're going to have in the second hour as well? Yeah, yeah, second <laughs> uh, hour. Come on, just, I'm going well, to wait in the second hour. In the, in the second hour, it's more, um, you know, it's more theoretical, or I would yeah. say theological, theological. Um, where we would be discussing the subject of Arabic as the mother of all tongues. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is going to be a you know, very interesting sort of discussion in
0: how is Arabic the mother of all tongues and uh, tongues or languages itself. Mm. Um, I suppose more of an academic yeah, exercise. Um, but I suppose you know, even though we we think of it as being maybe a bit uh, esoteric, you know, a yeah. bit kind of you know these uh, ivory co- or ivory towers yeah. of knowledge. But I'm, you know, it still has relevance to what we are, you know, what we're talking about today. Exactly you know, our language that we use today.
1: Exactly. So, um, I mean, if the question more is like, okay, you know, uh, how do we tie both? S- subjects into one i guess mm. um because I suppose- maybe maybe i'm i am stretching but yeah i guess look uh migration language uh, language is a key key factor in migration mm-hmm. and um one ex- important language uh, i would all languages are important of course but um yes arabic uh considering this is the voice of islam um, islam originates from this language so mm-hmm. um yeah let's 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 yeah, let's see we'll how we into that yeah. and uh,
0: the 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 rationale that it is the mother of all oh, tongues but uh, without further ado we're going to jump into the first topic um which is migration and you know no one we've titled it no one chooses to be a refugee now the we've seen in the news recently that it's most probably the hottest topic really in the UK uh, if not in the UK globally in, Western, in the Western Hemisphere, really, right? Uh, but here in the UK, you know, it's got, it's, the actual United Kingdom has undergone substantial shifts in its immigration policy, uh, a domain where rhetoric often clashes with the actual reality. Now, on the 4th of December, the Home Secretary, James Cleverley, announced a plan to slash migration levels and to curb the abuse of the immigration system. Uh, The press uh, release promised together this package will mean around 300,000 people who came to the UK uh, last year would now not be able to come. The narrative presented by the government outlines strategic changes designed to address economic needs, uh, enhance social integration and prioritise our national interests. But, however... Uh, as the ink dries on this policy document, uh, the disparity between, like I said, the rhetoric uh, behind migration and the tangible impact uh, on individuals, communities and the broader socioeconomic landscape becomes uh, increasingly apparent. Uh, this divergence ra- raises critical questions about the effectiveness of these policy Uh, alterations and the implications for the lives of those directly affected. Uh, In today's show, we're going to delve into the nuanced terrain of UK immigration policy, uh, dissecting the rhetoric that frames it and examining the stark realities that unfold beneath the surface. I mean, there's a a recent World Development Report. What did it say in there? Well, according to the World Development Report in 2023,
1: the number of people worldwide living outside their origin countries as of 2023 is at its historical high almost quadruple the level in 1960s about 2.3% of the world's population which is which equates to 184 million people wow. live outside of their country of nationality mm.
0: and the combined impact of crises poverty uh, inequality and violence around the world has led to these numbers these unprecedented numbers of people fleeing their homes in search of safety uh better living conditions and employment opportunities yep. so there is you know this you know economic migrant there yep. but still i would uh i would ascertain that the majority of migration is still i suppose quote unquote those who are fleeing from conflict
1: exactly and um the rise of conflict um in in the modern age as well is uh, is the concern so um this rise obviously would would lead to um the the you know the the need for migration or um you know for for these countries who are if we're discussing the UK for instance the mm-hmm. the need to um cut Cut migration as well. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, this is the the main issue here. Uh, you know the, this mean, this, this, st- this statistic you know is very interesting. From 1960s to the to the year 2023, mm-hmm. for it to quadruple. Mm-hmm. Now, you know it, it it is a question of history as well. From from in this in this period, uh, what is the what were the major factors that led to it to um, quadruple to that point, right? And also the fact that the means of travel. Um, for instance, uh, aeroplanes, mm-hmm. this easier way uh, or an easier path out. Um, you know, also the, I don't know how how would you explain it? People uh, illegally or you know finding channels that mm-hmm. would inla-
0: allow them. To I, to... I think you know that that's the thing between the re- or the raison d'être for this program yeah. is there's a rhetoric yeah. that the government. Uh, would have us believe and a reality yep. to what it is because subsequent governments in the past almost 15 years right 13 years let's yep. say have pushed out this idea of migration and said look you know it's actually bad for us right mm. we need to uh, I mean effectively in 2016 this country voted to leave the EU the and one of the you know one of the supposed reasons was to actually limit Migration into this country. And uh, one of the telling stats was that from the uh, from 2016 onwards to the present day, you have had a net, uh, a negative net migration of EU citizens. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's worked. Yeah. But why did we have that spike? I mean, it was in the Office of National Statistics uh, about two weeks ago. I mean, we had net migration of over 700,000 in one year. So if we're not getting those EU migrants, right, uh, coming over, who are these made up of? And um, I think the breakdown was that actually they are migrants who are being allowed to come into the UK on work visas. That is the majority and it's for employment. Mm. Um, So on the one hand, so this, this is the rhetoric. The government wants us to believe that oh, these all these illegal migrants are coming, or illegal immigrants are coming into the country. Mm. But actually, are they? You know, the stats tell us differently. It's no different. Yeah, it's because, how you portray the how you convey the message. Yeah, exactly. It? Right. So, you know, there is that you know rhetoric versus reality. And to speak more about this, we're actually joined by our first guest of the uh, afternoon, uh, Anna uh, Gavlos. Now, Anna is a communications or is. The communications officer of Migrants Rights Network. She's heavily invested in analysing and critiquing the border as a site of violence for radicalised and uh, my sorry, migratized? is that a word? Communities as well. Anyway, we'll get to the bottom of that, Anna. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show this day.
2: Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to
0: be here. Right. So we're talking about migration. Uh, we, myself and Rana, have already said you know it's 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 one of the hottest topics um, in this country, if not uh, most uh, in Europe, really in the Western Hemisphere. Now you know there's a rhetoric and there's a reality. So we want to try and kind of delve into that and find out what the reality of the situation of migration is for this country i mean but before we get into that can you just uh, because you work with uh, you're the communications officer of migrants rights uh, network i mean can you let our listeners know what are the aims of uh, the migrants rights network
2: yeah sure so firstly the migrants rights network is a uk-based charity where majority migrant and poc led Um, We have at the heart of all the work we do, um, valuing lived experience, but also valuing progressive values. Um, We're all about challenging issues at the root. um, And we're all about um, prioritizing collaboration as opposed to, like, extraction.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, And
2: so I guess our main aim is kind of that we want a world where people are free to move, Mm -hmm. uh, but also a world where no one's forced to move. So we want a world without oppression and a world where no one's safety and dignity is compromised because of their immigration status. And so we achieve this through our work on like four key areas or sub aims, so to speak. So change, strengthen, defy and solidarity. So change speaks to the fact that we want transformational systemic change. We do this on our work um, through looking at the, um, the home office, exposing employment exploitation, our work on the, um, the hostile digital environment Um, We also want to ensure that migrants are their own change makers, so that really speaks to the strength and element of our aim. Um, We want to ensure migrants have the information and tools necessary to do that, Um, and this can be seen through our Know Your Rights Guide, through our Migrant Aspiration Programme, which is a leadership programme, and through our co-curation of campaigns and our network of experts by lived experience. we also do a lot of work on defying the narrative, and we have two key strands here, so we have our Words Matter campaign, which looks at harmful um, anti-migrant um, narratives and words that are used like by mainstream media and by politicians and by journalists. And we kind of shine a light on why certain words and narratives are really harmful. Um, And we also have a very intersectional campaign called Who is Welcome, which looks at the intersections between uh, migration and racism, migration and and Islamophobia, um, because racism and and Islamophobia are integral to defining who is welcome in this country and who is not. Um, And finally, our final aim is um, solidarity. So essentially, it's showing solidarity with all marginalised groups amongst a kind of increasing um, environment of scapegoating, hostility, vilification um, amongst the consistent and persistent um, attacks on migrants through legal and policy avenues that we've seen through the Rwanda Plan, the pushbacks of small boats, the Illegal Migration Act, the Nationality and Borders Act, and the housing of um, asylum seekers on really um, dehumanising um, accommodations such as, like, military sites.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you know... W- why do you think that in this and most Western countries, migration is viewed in a negative way? And do you actually, um, is, the, is it true? Is is it generally considered that it's um, viewed in, an, in a negative way?
2: I would say, yeah. So uh, the West, um, especially in Europe, people, politicians, the media view migration in an increasingly negative and mm. hostile way, primarily because... Um, like the main undercurrent of this is racism and Islamophobia Mm. because migrants are seen as a quote-unquote threat or a quote-unquote invasion. Mm. Um, And we we also see the way that human rights imperialism comes into play here. Um, And it's ironic that the West, which views itself as the cradle of civilization, quote-unquote, it denies human rights to migrants and it applies human rights selectively. So um, we've established like safe routes uh, for white Ukrainians But if it's for Syrians or anyone else who is racialized or Muslim, Mm. um, these groups are demonized and they're not allowed in. Um, And also, I guess the West hostility to migration speaks to the deliberate amnesia of Europe that they have with respect to colonialism and empire and how people continue to be displaced by colonial legacies. Um, To a large extent, the West is responsible for causing the problems that cause migration. Mm -hmm. So this history of looting wealth, history of displacing people through conflict, through divide and rule. Um, Global South and Muslim-majority countries are held in debt, and then they're forced into austerity. Um, Public governments are are installed by the West. Um, All these kinds of horrific events are caused by... Ongoing forms of colonialism and imperialism, um, and it's just quite ridiculous why the West like continues to wonder why people migrate and why people move, since these le- these colonial legacies are so powerful and so um, pertinent.
3: But Anna, um, but
0: you know the thing is that you know with the stats that had come out a couple of weeks ago from the ONS saying that you know net migration had uh, hit a record 745,000 into the country. Um, the re- I mean, this is what we're trying to break down. You know, is there any truth to the rhetoric from this, you know, the UK government that we are facing this the these hordes, right? I mean, you were talking about terminology and the negative terminology, and I think one of the words is hordes that uh, yeah. the governments use. These hordes of um, migrants that are coming to take our jobs. So, yeah, my my. Um, I suppose my thought. Processes that well, hold on. We've got we've had a government who um, had its in its previous manifestos that yes, we're going to control or we're going to get a handle on this problem of migration. So over thirteen years, um, their net migration policy has actually been woeful to say the least, because you know it's hit a record seven hundred forty-five thousand last year. So on the one hand, they're saying that we are the, you know, we're, we're the party, we're the government who are going to control this. They were given power to come up with policies to control migration. But actually, this is what we're getting, 745,000. And really, the reality of it is that the illegal immigrants and refugees count for a small percentage of that net migration total?
2: Um, So at MRN, we're not really interested in kind of like um, distinguishing or putting or categorising refugees and like migrants including refugees into a camp of quote unquote being genuine and another Mm -hmm. camp of being ungenuine uh, because we just feel that this plays into the government's rhetoric of like dividing uh, migrants along um, racial and class lines so this is something that we reject. In terms of the numbers again so we don't we don't we don't base our arguments of accepting and protecting migrants on the amount of migrants that choose the UK as a new home what we do is we say we support migration because migrants are entitled to dignity and to respect. So mm. the numbers doesn't really come into this for us because it's a it's a tactic used to I guess dehumanise people because if you're just viewing them as numbers and of course you're going to dehumanise them. And I guess the numbers also play into this idea of and um, scapegoating because we have a lot of problems in the society, namely being like austerity, cost of living crisis, homelessness, poverty, and these are all things that are entirely preventable, entirely controllable, entirely caused by the government and it lack of compassion and for many people they find it much easier to blame a migrant than the real cause of all these issues which is people at the top hoarding all the wealth so I guess instead of blaming migrants our question should be to blame the people actually responsible for this to blame the colonial interventions that are forcing people to flee their homes.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And is it just rhetoric that the changes to existing immigration policies of the UK government will meet the evolving needs of the nation?
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, So at MRN, we say that this is like the rhetoric that the government peddles is a dangerous calculated lie. And it's it's intended to sow division, it's intended to create hysteria and like moral panic surrounding migration. And it's intended to be a distraction. Um, Because the government says that it's, you know, these actions are helping working people, but none, none of its policies have really helped that because The people stealing working-class people's jobs aren't migrants. They're Mm -hmm. the people in the top who extract the labour of ordinary working-class people and exploit them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we need dignity for everyone. We need an end to austerity. We need to um, invest in our social services. We need to stop funnelling money into foreign wars and sending arms to other governments. Mm. And the government presents the oppression of migrants as the solution to problems that it has itself created through austerity. So framing the oppression of migrants as the solution to anything is such a dangerous, pernicious lie. And it's so important that we all reject this framing. Mm-hmm.
0: So what do you think then, Anna, to uh, the current Home Secretary, James Cleverly's changes, those five points yeah, that he's, he's come out with? I mean, what kind of impact is this going to have on migration then within the UK or into the UK?
2: So I, I, are you speaking about the attempt to cut migration down by 300,000? 300,
0: yeah, 300,000.
2: Um, so... Obviously,
0: I mean one of these points was that um, there's going to be, you know, if you are an, uh, a migrant here, that you have to actually have a, a wage of, uh, I believe, thirty-eight thousand five hundred uh, to enable your spouse to come over. I mean, what you know, these, you know, it might be just a number, but it's going to, I mean, you know, to be earning thirty-eight, thirty-eight thousand five hundred pounds, it's it's not a bad wage, right? It's quite a, you know, it's it's not a kind of like an entry wage, so. You know, a lot of um, the work that migrants actually have, uh, are employed in doesn't have, you know, that basic wage level of thirty-eight thousand. It's way below that. Unless they work like twenty twenty-hour fifty. Yeah, yeah 20 exactly. Hours, yeah. Mm-hmm. To 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 actually mm-hmm. hit yeah, that so... hit that point. So, you know, something like that, um, you know, that that uh, target. I mean, what is the you know what do you think is going to be the ramification of that?
2: Yeah. So obviously, like increasing this minimum salary requirements, we view that we think that this pits workers against each other and it -hmm. it obscures the same institutions and systems that are responsible for the exploitation of all workers. And so especially with respect to this like new figure, this uh, minimum salary, it's like it's clear to us that um, this is like very gendered and racialized because obviously like women and people of color and migrants are less on average than white men. Um, and there's, there's other elements of that package that we have an issue with as well, because, um, for instance, the um, extortionate increases to the health surcharge, that mm-hmm. will also be financially debilitating. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in there that we don't agree with. Also, the um, the increasing of the minimum salary requirement is also something that will split up families and it will contribute to more isolation um, and it seems and it's clear to us that the right to your family life is becoming more and more of a class privilege that is only afforded mm-hmm. to people who have enough money. Um, and so, yeah, just to circle back to what I said before, like th- this whole focus on reducing migration by 300,000. Again, it comes to viewing migrants only as numbers and not as, as people. And it's really dehumanizing and we can't let this government divide us and um, sort of manufacture consent. Um, the oppression of people based on
0: where they're born mm, i think what illustrates your point that you know unfortunately we're given these statistics and then we view um migrants whether they be refugees immigrants as a number um is underlined by just recently the suicide on the bb stockholm and you know we forget that you know these you know the people at the end of the day right and mm-hmm. we've seemed to have lost our humanity as regards to that um which is which is a so- sorry state to find our society and to tell the truth um how does the uk government's stance on immigration shape public opinion and conversely how does public sentiment influence government policies if in fact they do do Um, um, And additionally, how does the media contribute to or influence these dynamics in the context of migration?
2: So a lot of it is a vicious cycle. So the government stance legitimizes and normalizes and kind of gives a seal of approval to discriminatory attitudes and prejudices. It kind Mm -hmm. of says, it's okay for you to deny people's dignity on account of their migration status. And the public will buy into this propaganda and scapegoating that then emboldens the government to continue with its lies. The media also has a massive role in this, the language that they're using um, with the, the invasion and the threat comments, all this panic that it whips up, it sends people into frenzy and it manufacturers consent for increasingly oppressive policies and something that we've noticed at MRN is the the conditional acceptance narrative is very pervasive so it's this idea that the media does that they constantly spotlight stories of migrants running marathons or creating successful businesses or doing mm. exceptional feats and no one should need to be doing exceptional feats in order to be worthy of respect yeah, exactly.
0: and so and the we're idea al- of we're all average really
2: and yeah, the, the idea of this, this contribution, this having to do exceptional thing things, it really cements this binary between the good and the bad migrant, the, the deserving, the undeserving migrant. And it implies that migrants can only be res- respected if they contribute. And it's just wrong on so many levels. And it plays into the division and it splits migrants up, it categorizes them based into different categories. And according to that, it then assigns respect to some and assigns demonization to others. Um, And so we we, we really fight against this kind of um, that can often be quite well-meaning rhetoric that you see in the media Mm -hmm. that kind of like, oh, look at this migrant who's contributing. And what we say is, no, um, we're we're not basing our respect on migrants, on their ability to contribute. That's just dehumanizing.
0: Right. I get you. Well, Anna, um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thanks for joining us here on the Drive Time Show.
2: Thanks so much. Bye bye.
0: Bye bye. Have a good day. Oh two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, I suppose, Rana, some of those things that uh, uh, the 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 main thing that Anna is like pointing out is this demonization that the media and maybe you know the government have, I suppose, led us and persuaded us into thinking uh, is. A, you know this migrant issue right mm. and it's demonized that uh and in some respects i suppose weaponized that in this, so that uh, the general public view them as an enemy yeah right
1: i, I think also well, and, um, and as we will be discussing throughout our uh our program you know the the word demonize uh is used specifically for maybe certain groups um mm-hmm. she also used the word uh, it's, you know uh islamophobia quite a lot as well okay so islamophobia is something which is helpful in demonizing a certain aspect of um migrants whereas um you know how is it uh, received by the public okay on one hand you have this sort of demonization but on the other hand okay if it's um a certain group of migrants that you are willing to accept Mm -hmm. the word demonize won't be used there it's more of a let's pave the way sort of uh for them okay so oh um Rich white, I don't, I don't like to refer to exactly this the tone, but rich, affluent bring them in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need help, um, and she touched upon. Okay, but if it's the same case
0: with the Syrian, uh, all... yeah, no, I, I think you know, there's no point in tiptoeing yeah, around it. Exactly, you know, I feel you tiptoe. There's no point. I mean, I, I see it clearly, yeah. and you can because you know we hear on the voice of Islam. Yeah. And we like to represent or present, not represent, yeah. present both sides of the exactly, argument. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, I feel that you're only basically yeah. pointing out the truth that was in front of our exactly, eyes. Yeah. So let's look at, you know, some of the um, immigration policies uh, that the British government has had in recent history, very yeah. recent history, uh, as uh, regards to different. Episodes in conflicts around the world. Yeah. So, you know, both Anna and yourself have brought up uh, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. So, to my memory, when that happened, straight away there were avenues, right, which were created by the Home Office and the UK government to allow Ukrainians to come over, yeah. right? And in fact, there were schemes yeah. to sponsor you putting up a Ukrainian in yeah. your home, okay? So that's on the one hand. Um, When the UK and the US withdrew from Afghanistan, there were, uh, I I believe the um, acronym was ARAP, right? Mm -hmm. Afghani Resettlement uh, Programme. So that was brought about. And uh, for those uh, Afghan nationals who had helped the UK in whatever um, responsibilities whether it be military or uh, administration because we understand that there would be some um, let's Re- say reward yeah not just it. reward but oh, yeah. there would be some kickback kick uh, if say for instance you're an Afghan yeah, and you've, and just you've worked for yeah, the, uh, UK. the UK or the US right there will be reprisals yeah. against yourself and your family so that what, was what I meant by
1: reward reward by those who you've helped yeah, yeah. exactly
0: um so those are the only two schemes that I know of. Uh, I mean, if anyone else out there, one of our listeners knows of any other schemes that the Home Office is uh, putting out there for refugees, uh, please call in 0208-687-7878. But all other, mig- or all other people claiming asylum and refugees from other conflicts cannot get to this country legally. They cannot get to this country legally. Now, why is it that, you know, we've got the conflict and it's, you know, we do not condone any uh, way, shape, or form, you know, human life being taken, yeah. right? Regardless race, color, or creed. Exactly. Yeah. Right? That is the Islamic way of thinking in, mm-hmm. in these terms. But is then the policies that allow white Ukrainians to come in? and to actually be sponsored, well, how's that working out? Because in my mind, there are countless conflicts which are still going on around the world. You know, Syria, Yemen, yeah? We're we're talking about two big conflicts here. Syria has been going since 2012. Hmm. So we're talking 11 years, yeah? You're talking over almost 7 million people displaced from Syria. So there's no, you know, we don't have to be... um, tiptoeing around the situation, yeah. right? So for my mind, well, it's because there is a colour issue here, mm. right? Just, let's, you know, not avoid the elephant in the in yeah. the room and just call it out, right? Is it a racial thing? You know, and I think it is. Mm. I truly think it is. <sighs> I, I, I would still like to tiptoe
1: around. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to, um, you know, I, I the thing is um, being someone from... I would say from a refugee status, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, migrating, okay? I, you know, personally, uh, seeing myself and seeing people from the similar sort of background, um, in numbers, um, and having a good, a decent lifestyle here in England, Mm -hmm. you know, I I wouldn't want to all of a sudden think that, oh, it's become a, a selectively racial thing, okay? Um, it, the, for me, the, I would say that the British government does its best, uh, if we're talking about the British government and, and migration, uh, does whatever it can uh, and has always tried its best for the best of the people and for the sake of um, people uh, having a good life, uh, as long as there are there are obviously certain criteria which you need to meet. So I don't all of a sudden want to say, well, no, no, everything has changed. It's become uh, racially... Um, uh, p- prevalent now the situation is 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 what is before us okay right now we have a situation we have these situations
0: mm. um also but there is I, a, i'm I'm just saying that currently i i, I know where you're going with yeah. that um but there's, i would one, one more point i would just
1: like to, before no. before that is that <clears throat> i think there's a lot of uh, study goes study into it as well what happens in other countries mm-hmm. uh and you see what goes on in other countries now a view of that could be, uh, and I could be wrong. Um, let's say, for instance, Germany completely opens its borders for mm-hmm. people from all over the Middle East who are going through some sort of conflict to just just settle into Germ- into Germany, or from Afghanistan as well. I was recently in in Germany, and I, uh, one part of Germany which has a a lot of um, you know it's completely changed. I was there ten years ago, and as to what it is now, it's a uh, you know it's like it's like you're back in in London, for instance, or in in West London, right? Mm-hmm. So. Germany's o- opened up its borders. What are the problems they have seen, uh, have had? Mm-hmm. You know, these are also studied by everyone. Okay, and maybe that's one of the reasons why they are. You know, the, the, let's instead of having those same issues with with within your own borders, how could you avoid it? And maybe why that's why maybe some policies are introduced. But I still, you know,
0: I'm so you, s- you you contend that the current. Uh, governments' policies on uh, migration and immigration, as say, are a deterrent. A deterrent to what may become.
1: Yeah, right? because because otherwise I can't see any
0: uh, but, va- know, valid reason to it. Well, see, I would contend to that that migration is in human nature. Yeah. Right. There is transitional migration. Always has been. Yeah. yeah. Because you know people are that way inclined. Yeah. Now my point or the problem I have currently yeah. with the UK government's immigration policy is that it's it's actually it's a it's almost like a smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Because on the one hand and this is what I'm saying there's this rhetoric, you know, and uh, something that Anna uh, pointed out to was the you know the words that the terminology which has been mm-hmm. used. Has weaponized yeah. migration, so that we fear migration, right? As a whole, media has has has, has joined in here. Now, the the problem, the thing here is that how is it read? Okay, is
1: it if it's read by a migrant or someone who knows migration? Mm-hmm. Is that same? You know, all of these terms, do they come across as a weaponized sort of sentiment? Yeah, but it's if I give you yeah. a
0: headline. Yeah. right? So hordes of. Refugees yeah. coming to our shores. Yeah,
1: that's obviously you know it's it's um,
0: it it's it's not it's not really. <laughs> except, except so so it. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. This this weaponizes it because in reality, and this is one of the points I was trying to uh, bring Anna on, although she kind of like sidestepped it, yeah. like saying, and which is fair uh, because you know their organization, uh, the Migrants yeah. Rights Network don't want to make that distinction between uh whether you're a refugee, you're an economic migrant yep. or whatever. It's they don't want to make that distinction and I understand why they don't want to make that distinction, because everyone is a migrant, yep. right? They want to be classed in um the same way and have the same rights. My point is that, well, look, if you come over, right, you should be. Yeah. And you and you're welcomed over, right? Then why is it, on the one hand, we have all these economic migrants, which are the bulk of that 700,000 that have have peaked, Mm. but they're not from who the government led us to believe were coming to our shores, right? These are actually economic migrants who are coming over to fill a gap, a skills shortage, a labor shortage Mm. in our NHS, actually, it's turned out to be the NHS system, right? So, how how could you use that exactly? How how can we, on the one hand, say, look, we need to repel our borders, right, from these 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 migrants, but then, actually, on the you know, on your backhand, say, actually, no, you know what? You're gonna provide. You're gonna provide for us in a skills gap mm. that we have currently, a labour shortage that we have currently, in the National Health Service. Yeah. So do you see what I mean? Of course, I see what you mean, and
1: I, w- I would say that. Look, th- this is a question of clarity. Okay, so you would. You, is that what you would like? Really, isn't it? You would like clarity that the, this is the, the government should come clean in terms of who they term as um, uh, economic migrants. Okay, and that should not be. In the same sort of uh, category as a refugee. Okay, mm-hmm. a refugee is you know it's it's a it's it's someone who says I have nothing and I need. I, I you. mean,
0: look, look at the, these things. You know, all this uh, furor about the Rwanda bill, yeah. right, and getting it through Parliament uh, last week, and then there was going to be this rebellion, yeah. and then suddenly uh, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was able to push through that bill, yeah. and he had the backing of all his MPs, mm. right, all the Tory MPs. But if you look at the nuts and bolts of it, how many people are we sending over there? And how much is it costing this country? A mm. hundred odd, yeah. right? We've already paid up front £240 million to Rwanda. And Rwanda have actually said, the Rwanda government have even said to us, look, if you want us to break international law, we're not going to do it. Yeah. So it's... This smoke and mirrors once yeah. again, right? It's actually presenting something that yes, we have this Rwanda bill, yeah. uh, this plan for all these um, illegal Illeg- yeah. illegal immigrants, uh, illegal migrants into our shores as a deterrent. Mm. Well, is it really? Is it no? Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, we're, 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 we we have actually also got a uh, pre-record with Doctor uh, Ashwari. Okay, already. Well, I'll, I'll re I'll redo that mm. uh, regarding the immigration or regarding this topic uh, around immigration. Joining us on the Draft Time Show
4: is Dr. Ashwini Kisnaredi. She's a Leverhulme Research Fellow at the Refuge S- Studies Centre and incoming Sir William Golding Research Fellow at Brazenose College at the University of Oxford. Dr. Kisnaredi, thank you so much for for agreeing to to join us here on the Draft Time Show and welcome on uh, on the show.
5: Thank you very much um, for inviting me to be on the show. I'm happy to be here.
4: Now, a lot of your work surrounds or is around refugee children experiences. If I can start off by asking you if you can share with us some of the possible effects on children when they experience displacement, when they experience homelessness um uh, in situations that we've seen
5: um thank you for this question um i'd like to begin to answer this question um by giving you some figures Uh, so the united nations high commissioner for refugees figures for 2022 are that there were 108.4 million displaced people worldwide 62.5 million were internally displaced that is within their country 35.3 million are refugees. And of these forcibly displaced people, 43.3 million are children, and 1.9 million are born as refugees. So these are the sort of figures we are looking at right now globally. Now children benefit from a stable situation, consistency, a comfortable environment in which to thrive, a society which helps shape them through education, good healthcare and support all around. In the case of refugee children, all of these factors are forcibly taken away. They are experiencing shock after shock, they are being wrenched away from their homes, traveling days on end, sometimes not getting enough food or sleep, and sometimes in grave danger as their families seek refuge. Unaccompanied minors are in an even tougher position as they don't have anyone to protect them and are at risk of being targeted and becoming victims of modern slavery. Displacement and homelessness can also mentally affect the children who have been uprooted and don't know how to deal with the situation in which they find themselves. If we look at refugees from a a few decades ago, for instance, we know that forced displacement can have a profound impact in the longer term.
4: Thank you very much for that. Um, Now, Dr. Kitten, you've written about something that I personally heard for the first time as well, and that is migrant masculinity. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and and its effect on on the future generations?
5: Um, Yes, my original work was at the intersections of gender and migration, and I wanted to see how migration impacts masculinities as there are so many cultural adjustments that are made when someone from a different culture arrives in a country with a completely different set of mores and values. And these culture gaps and clashes were interesting to study, especially with masculinities, as relational to femininities. So when equality between genders come into play, for instance, women gaining financial independence, working and being educated, sometimes changes the balance within the home. And that interested me. It was thought provoking to see a little bit how this impacts refugees. With migration, there's a voluntary movement to a new country and tough changes are complex. There is a compromise as it was a chosen move. With refugee families, it is fascinating to see this dynamic change a little bit. So most families I've met have only recently been resettled and are very attached to their values. But since refugees are not allowed to work, for example, I see teenage daughters who in the culture of origin would not be working are doing shifts at Tesco, for instance, while their fathers have to stay at home. So becoming a resettled refugee certainly affects family dynamics in a range of ways.
4: Interesting. And so you spoke about, just you just mentioned resettlement. What, what are some of the most pressing challenges that, these refugees face in their journey to resettlement and also safety? I mean, you have the displacement and the journey, the new culture, the new country, that's on one side, but w- what else can you tell us?
5: Well, there's a range of things that's um you can count as challenges that are faced. Um, Of course, along the journey, there will be external and internal ones. So externally, the current political debates around migrants can have a chilling effect, wherein there is no difference highlighted between migrants and refugees. A migrant is someone who has chosen to leave their country and can return at any point. A refugee is someone who has been forced to leave and cannot return. So when refugees are called migrants, they are being denied their legal status as vulnerable people in need of protection and safety. By the same stroke, If the political apparatus says all migrants are bad and refugees are grouped together in this umbrella term, then the general population will see vulnerable refugees as bad. So aside from this, there are other challenges similar to the good versus bad migrant rhetoric. There's also the idea that there's a good refugee and a bad refugee. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there tends to be a combination of race and religion involved. We saw this with the Ukrainians being openly welcomed by their Polish neighbours, who conversely have barriers in place against Afghans and Syrians who are seeking refuge. The same was seen in Calais, where the mayor welcomed Ukrainians with open arms and openly evicts the Syrians, Eritreans, Sudanese and Afghans from makeshift camps. And speaking of camps, camps were seen as a band-aid to the refugee problem of the Second World War. And now we have refugee camps that are decades old, such as Atari in Jordan or Kakuma in Kenya, to name a few. Many children are being born and raised in these camps, not knowing what a different life they lead from the children who were born in countries at peace. For the refugees in these camps, resettlement and safety is still a distant hope. But I also want to talk a little bit about resettlement itself and its challenges, um, because displacement can cause an inability to feel at home in a new country. And there's a latent fear that this home too will not be a forever home. So the impact on mental health cannot be discounted and many refugee children and adults come to a host country after suffering through countless traumas, and these are not picked up straight away. There is no systematic mental health check in some countries. Geneva's city of refuge, for instance, ensures that every child who arrives has a mental health follow-up. In the UK, there is an option to do so, but many children and their families are not aware of these services and, as such, don't access them. Sorry. Now, when resettled children arrive in a host country, they are also facing a range of issues. So often, they don't speak the language, and it takes time for them to be able to speak enough to talk about their problems. I recently interviewed some young people from Syria and Afghanistan who were resettled in the UK, and their main challenge was the act of statutory position, provision sorry, for EAL and ESL teaching. That's English as additional language, English as secondary language teaching. I'm currently working on a project with several charities who provide such, such services as local authorities and schools' can't for this support. So there's a range of challenges being faced even after resettlement. We are only starting to see the impact of resettlement on children who were resettled decades ago. So there's still a lot for us to learn.
4: Hmm. Now, uh, you uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You you work on a project with the Department for Education on improving provisions for you know newly newly arrived ca- children here in the UK specifically. Yeah. In that, do you do you consider cultural differences and how that impacts? you know, the integration process for refugees in their host countries?
5: Um, Yes. Um, So the project with the DfE is at its inception right now. So we're starting to think about these issues. Um, And I've just as I've just said, there's a lot of problems with the EAL provision, which is basically um, not consistent across regions in the UK. Um, It's not statutory. So it means that not every uh, school can provide it. And so there's a big reliance on uh, charities to do so. But importantly uh, it's not just about language learning it's also about the fact that um there there should be holistic provision available for uh, the children who have just arrived we're looking at mental health care but we're also looking at issues of community and belonging and how youth services and other people can sort of have an impact on uh, building this community and belonging for these children and i'm going to Go back a little bit um, in time and talk to you a little bit about these issues of uh, integration process for refugees in their host countries. Mm -hmm. Um, Going back in time to think about how other refugees have had to deal with this. So I'm going to give you the example of Vietnamese refugees after they they resettled. So um, let's talk about, for instance, the Confucian values at odds with the countries of resettlement in different levels. So if you think about the Confucian tenet of three obediences, a woman owes obedience to her father, to her son and to her, uh, sorry, to her father, to her son, and before that to the husband. She is self-effacing, she runs the home while the man goes out and works the domestic space is the woman's, the public space is the man's. This dynamic changed when the refugee Vietnamese women arrived in host countries where to make ends meet, both husband and wife had to work. So girls grew up, growing up could be educated to high levels and aspire to have a career, which many of them did. And the family is impacted, and there's a shift that needs to happen for them to feel at home in the host country. Growing up, many of these children speak of the fact that they feel they have two identities and two cultures, one in the home and one outside. Society accepts them if they fit into this mould, but if they don't, they are marginalised. This, I think, is one of the most prominent issues faced by a of refugee families globally. How to integrate without losing one's culture and values, and if one does this well, how does one do it without feeling torn between the two? Dinanayri, a former Iranian child refugee in the USA, describes this as being a chameleon, changing colours depending on the environment and the people around you. It is perhaps one of the prices that refugee families pay for peace and stability. And only time will tell us how this will impact different generations.
4: Indeed. Very, very interesting. Um, thank you very much, first of all, at this point um, for your time, Dr. Kisnoretti.
3: Thank you for the invitation. I um, really,
4: greatly appreciate it. Um, and uh, as I said, thank you so much. Have a great weekend ahead and uh, peace be with you. Thank you so much. Thank
0: you. As-salamu and Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show, Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. So that was an interview with Dr. Kisner Reddy uh, by our Imam Reza Ahmad. And, you know, just because we're coming to the end of the first segment, uh, and yeah, as as my esteemed co-host, I said, let's take the Islam box. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the, it, there is and, no such that but... Because, you know what? I've said that as a bit of tongue-in-cheek, yeah. but actually, what I... You know, Islam pervades. Yeah, it's for us who are true believers, right? uh, Who have converted or been born Muslim, right? It it's part of our life anyway. So we're talking about migration. It's a solution
1: to everything as
0: well. So everything exactly, you
1: you would find the solution into it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So anything that we come across or any situation in life, right the answer is already there anyway the answer is already there in the holy quran yeah. right and in the sunnah the the traditions of the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him but let's do tick that box
1: yeah and it's you know without it it's, there's you know no no discussion is complete really so yeah. in islam uh, allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given particular importance to giving refuge to people who need it and who ask for it allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it our duty in islam to help refugees and asylum seekers to the extent of our capability just as we would wish someone would help us if we were in their place. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has also emphasized on multiple occasions on how important it is for a Muslim to help another human being when they seek help or ask for any sort of refuge. The Quran states, These spoils are for the poor refugees who have been driven out of their homes and their possessions while seeking grace from Allah and his pleasure and helping... uh, and helping Allah and His Messenger, there it is. Who there? These are these. It is who are true in their faith. There is also a narration of the Prophet: uh, "The people most beloved to Allah are those who are most beneficial to the to the people." Now, just to touch on this as well, you know, um, migration was a very uh, you know important aspect of Islam. From the very from the very outset, okay. Mm-hmm. So you know we can touch on history. We've all um, uh, heard about the stories of how the when the prophet claimed to be a, a messenger of God and how he was um, vilified. Uh, you know we, we've discussed d- demonised and uh, these sort of words of that demonise the word uh, migration. Now in terms of just safe uh, placement within your own city. The prophet was uh, was demonized, okay, mm-hmm. for his for his claim, and not just the prophet. Of course, everyone who truly believed in him, mm-hmm. uh, they had to go through extreme hardships. So, uh, migration the 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 element of migration uh, kicked into Islam from a very early stage, where the prophet sent some of his followers to Abyssinia, mm-hmm. and you know he gave um, he gave a great account of the uh, the ruler of Abyssinia at the time, saying uh, I think his name was King Negus or in Arabic, they would call him Najashi, or in Urdu, they call him Najashi. That uh, This is a man who respects um, monotheism, and he will give you refuge. So uh, this is one element of migration uh, that just kicked in straight away. A few years later, maybe halfway down the time of the Prophet uh reign as a prophet, uh, he had to migrate um, to Medina, for mm-hmm. instance, um, because of the, you know, the, the 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 hardships and the tortures that were being uh, inflicted upon him and his mm. uh, people in, in Mecca, in Mecca, were just uh, were just uh, they they were too much. They, it got to the point where either he stays there or he dies there. Okay, mm-hmm. so he was then given he was uh, welcomed with open arms in a in a city which was um, I'm not sure exactly the distance between Mecca and Medina, but it's not like um, it's not too far away in terms of like modern travel. Mm. Um, in Medina, when he was uh, he was he was welcomed there, and that was his um, you know his own personal migration. Uh, he, I think, that he also said at the time that look, uh, Mecca is probably the most beloved uh, place to me in my heart, but the people of this 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 town or this city, they uh, they don't want me to uh, they don't they they don't let me stay here. So I you know I would like to say that these are the, this is this is the point I was basically making that uh, migration has been a central theme right from the outset of islam
4: mm-hmm.
0: yeah I mean, and you know just to put it uh in a context global context as well yeah. not just in islam um if we look at and if we just take it out of the context of religion yeah but in just history history yeah you know, people have always migrated yeah right people have always traveled whether it be for economic uh or whatever education uh, the, yeah education. whatever it may yeah. be it has been the case yeah. yeah and it is in our genes to migrate you know right? a, and a, another,
1: another point that i would like to bring about um in you're terms getting of, going out around you know because go. Uh, you know the uh, for instance in our own uh, community the ahmedia community mm-hmm. migration plays a huge role okay yeah. and in the genesis of the of the community okay obviously obviously god almighty laid the foundation for it okay mm-hmm. he this is this was a community that we believe the blessed is a divine community yeah. but a strong element of migration is found in the, um, for, for instance, the first successor of the Promised Messiah, Malvi Hakim Nuruddin, uh, Hazan Malvi Hakim Nuruddin. He uh, left his home. I mean, he first he traveled all across um, British India at the time, mm-hmm. gained as much experience, as much knowledge in, for instance, chem- chemistry, uh, religion itself, the, uh, the, f- uh, the teachings of religion, uh, became one of the renowned scholars of the... What is the subcontinent now? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he totally migrated on the uh, request of um, uh, the promised Messiah Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed to stay with him in uh, in in Qadiyan, mm-hmm. okay? And from there on was the you know when the promised Messiah made his claim, and then the you know the foundations of the what 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 is the community today was laid there. So I would say that that also you know uh, this this element of migration. Has been uh, central for the for the community as well. Mm So these are some.
0: Yeah, Uh, I mean, just um, I don't think he
1: ever went back to his hometown. His hometown was Bera, for instance. mm -hmm. He never went back to that once the Promised Messiah told him to.
0: Yeah, because I mean, if we look at yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, if I think about it, yeah, I was born (coughs) in Essex, of all places, right. I've never been back. Yeah, I've never been back since. But just to conclude quickly, you know, uh, you know migrants, refugees, are they deserving of respect or not? <coughs> I mean, what we need to understand is that refugees are people at the end of the day, people who have been forced to flee their own country due to fear, persecution and war. Uh, violence, etc. Apart from considering the downsides and benefits of letting refugees into a country, it's crucial to think of them as important lives uh, of men, women and children, just as important as anyone else living in a certain country with a certain job. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. As-salamu alaykum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of The Drive Time Show. Here live in our studios in South London from our actual our studios of Voice of Islam Radio. Uh, time now is... Actually, I shouldn't do a time check, just in case of the sound cloud. <laughs> but we're in the, into our second uh, second topic now, uh, which is Arabic, the mother of all languages. Yeah. So I've just passed the ball over to my esteemed Imam Rana Atta. No,
1: I'm to, to... I'm I'm in the same boat as you as well. You know, we're we're both we both agree that it's the mother of all languages. Yes, we so. do, we do, we do. Actually, very well done. Yeah. Very well. <laughs> Sidestep there. Yeah, I mean, look, it's um, it's going to be an interesting discussion in mm. regards to um, we, you know, I mean, there is this question. Um, I I think it's recently it's also been debated as if that. Sanskrit is actually the mother of all languages mm-hmm. right so this it, it, it of course it requires a lot of re- research and it, it, it re- requires a, re- a lot of research for it to be uh factual that like, mm-hmm. yes ma- maybe Arabic isn't it, it's not Sanskrit it's Arabic but um what we will be what we will I mean the we're going to delve into yeah. one,
0: one, one of the strands as to... Uh, We're
1: going to strongly say Arabic is the mother of all
0: languages. Yeah, because we are a voice of Islam, yeah. right? Excellent. I mean, did you know that the Arabic language is one of the most widely spoken languages in the world? I mean, it's used daily by more than 400 million people. Now, uh, UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization regards that arabic that the arabic language to be a pillar of the cultural diversity of humanity uh, in the diversity of its forms classic or dialectal from oral expression to poetic calligraphy the arabic language has given rise to a fascinating aesthetic in fields as varied as architecture poetry and philosophy arabic of course is also the language in which Uh, Allah, the Almighty, revealed the Holy Quran to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. Now, in chapter 12, verse 3 of the Holy Quran, Allah, the Almighty, says, we have revealed it, the Quran in Arabic, that you may understand. The holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah, uh, peace be upon him, wrote a book titled Arabic, the mother of all languages, in which he made the case that the first speech taught to man was the one taught by God himself and that this speech was Arabic, all other languages are its offspring or offshoot. Mm. So, you know, is there, I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, is there any days that which, you know, we can actually celebrate Arabic as a language?
1: Yeah, um, since its very first celebration in 2012, each year on the 18th of December, UNESCO commemorates World Arabic Language Day, highlighting Arabic's legacy and immense contribution to humanity. Through this year's theme, Arabic, the language of poetry and arts, UNESCO, will shed a light on the numerous contributions of Arabic to humanity's cultural and linguistic diversity as well as uh, to to knowledge production. Uh, Arabic is a language that brings together people from various cultural, ethnical, religious and social backgrounds and to and to mark this year's uh, commemoration coincides with the 50th anniversary of the proclamation of Arabic as one of the 6 UN official languages. UNESCO will bring together researchers, academics, youths, uh, youth and Heads of international to date on philosophy and poetry, the contribution, um, the contribution of Arabic poetry to knowledge shaping and social transformations, Arabic language, and arts, broadening, uh, broadening the broadening scopes of cultural diversity, Arab Latinos, the Arab imprint in Latin America and the Caribbean, as part of the cultural events organized by UNESCO, a live mural, uh, a mural cal- calligraphy will take place throughout the entire day. UN Languages Days uh, promote and celebrate multilinguism and cultural diversity, as well as the equality of all official languages used in the organization and its agencies. Arabic, 18th December, Chinese, the 12th of November, English on the 23rd of April, French on the 20th, uh, 20th of March, Russian on the 6th of June, and Spanish on the 12th of October.
0: Mm. So... I was just thinking as we're talking about this, right, the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being a language yep. spoken uh, and when we hear verses, I mean, to me, actually, even when you hear azan, the call to prayer,
1: yeah,
0: it transports you to to start off with to that plateau where you should be anyway yep. to, to deliver your prayer. Mm. Right. But the uh, aesthetic, you know, I don't think there's many languages whereby it sounds good, but it actually looks good as well Mm. in terms of its calligraphy. Yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, the way that you actually uh, Arabic is presented, say Turkish, Mm. you know, interpretation, right? Of the aesthetic, yeah, we have it. We, in fact, I, you know, I have several pictures Mm. at home, right? And effectively, it's just words. And I was just like trying to think, well, would that be the same if you put a slogan in English on your wall, right? Mm. And it doesn't... I mean, there are beauties in the English language and other languages uh, in the Western Hemisphere, but they don't, for me personally, have that aesthetic quality that... Uh, Arabic Arabic calligraphy has, or even I'm a bit biased, I must admit, Chinese calligraphy. Yeah, because there's we in. um, See, when we we have a say a slogan or I wouldn't say slogan, say a, a, a saying right written in Chinese. It's not just the actual saying in itself. Mm. it's how it's been written Written, right the brush strokes I I don't have that level of appreciation to understand it but I had it explained to me once that uh, you know something very simplistic um, maybe four or five pictograms Mm. four or five Chinese characters it's not just conveying the literal meaning of it it's conveying you know you have a strength within the brush strokes as well is that the same in calligraphy
1: Look, um, that this this is basically a question for a person who is the art uh, who knows the art of calligraphy. I've mm. never, you know, my my own handwriting uh, in terms of uh, Arabic itself wouldn't wouldn't be the, the the most pleasant, I would say. But um, y- you Better might than mine. yeah, <laughs> 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 you, you would you would you would say yes. Look, whoever knows this art would mm. would would have studied um some of its like uh, you know the deeper meanings of or the deeper ways of. Uh, getting the best yeah, out of writing it. it. But right? in terms of just calligraphy and aesthetics um one, one I wouldn't say this is an issue but a rule we have in terms of mosques um is that we can't really place pictures um to decorate it, okay. Mm-hmm. You know you you if no you go adornments. for instance yeah if you go if you go to in into a church of course they look they look beautiful in mm-hmm. terms of all of the, you know, the window Pictures and all of that. Yeah. Um, I don't I'm stained not, glass. Yeah, stained glass exactly. But um, in Islam, this is not permissible. But mm-hmm. you know, how could you still make your mosque something where once you enter the mosque, uh, it's 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 a sight to adore. Mm-hmm. So calligraphy in that sense and in terms of aesthetics uh, plays a huge role. You know, mm-hmm. it 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 leaves this sort of mark within the 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 head of or the mind of the person who. Is therefore obviously uh, solace, peace, and solace, right? The, mm-hmm. the purpose of a mosque isn't just to pray, but it also is to find that uh, peace and solace within you. So, uh, of course, yes, uh, th- that that is a very important uh, element towards the uh, towards the writing of the language. Now, I would also say, look, um, you know, th- there is no like chart to say that this is the best mm-hmm. uh, language which is written or decorated in terms of like aesthetics. I would say every language um is is beautiful when it's done it in its in its own way as well but yes of course arabic um in terms of like uh just you know if you do reach that level of producing uh, art of that s- standard you know there's so many like verses of the holy quran or even surahs of the holy quran which are just like cons uh, they, they're decorated in such a beautiful way in terms of calligraphy, and it's uh, it is it is an art of the of the artist to make it like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is a beautiful element of our. This is a beautiful aspect of our of our of of this faith. Yeah, um,
0: because I was just like thinking there aren't many. Um, I'm, I'm obviously I'm aware of um, you know German, Spanish, English, yeah. uh, and just to think, yes, I can picture. Um, Say, for instance, uh, biblical text yeah. written in a calligraphic manner, yeah. but like I say, it's very subjective, yeah. right? Everyone's different. Beauty is in the eye of the eye beholder. Of the holder, yeah. um, but you, you know, know, one thing you I'm could... the host here, yeah. so from my eye, I just think actually, there, in terms of language, yeah. which is translated to, to a physical beauty, yeah. right? An aesthetic. There are, you know that. Two kind of like yeah. I mean, if you look at front riders for me are if, Arabic and Chinese. If you look at it from let's say not
1: from a, uh, we're not talking in terms of uh, art art generally from a religious point of view. Okay, mm. let's look at it from pop uh, popularism. Okay, mm-hmm. um, I would say look what what do you see as something which attracts someone? Okay, for instance, tattoos. Okay, mm-hmm. tattoos we're not they're not they're not we're not allowed in Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know people who do have them. Why? What kind of things do they want on them, right? Mm -hmm. And what, you know, language is also a part of that, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, you would, I don't know if it's Mandarin or if it's Japanese or Mm -hmm. if it's... uh, It's mainly Chinese. Mainly Chinese, okay. A lot of people want uh, Mandarin tattoos or Mm -hmm. Chinese tattoos, okay? And and now you would see that there seems to be a rise of Arabic Arabic text, not necessarily verses
0: of the Quran, just Arabic text. I just want my name in Arabic. (laughs) There's so many times I've seen Chinese or supposedly tattoos of Chinese and they're not Chinese. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh! But anyway, we're, I think I think we're kind of like moving away from yeah. the subject. Let's 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 go to our first guest of the afternoon uh, regarding Arabic, mother of all languages. Now we've got the uh, Mustafa Siddiqui, uh, who's a graduate from uh, Jamia UK in 2021. Uh, Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Mustafa. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show.
6: Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having
0: me. So uh, we're talking about Arabic, uh, mother of all languages. I mean, could you explain the historical context and actual evidence that supports this assertion, Um, you know, highlighting key milestones in the evolution of Arabic and its influence actually on other languages?
6: Arabic, of course, uh, is a Semitic language, as we all know. And so it's uh, very, very old and originating in the Middle East. And um, the thing is, there is a, a variance between modern scholarship as terms of the history of Arabic, because it's universal consensus that Arabs, Arabic is a very, very old language, thousands of years old. The Jama'at and Islam goes further by
3: mm-hmm.
6: the theory presented by God Almighty, which is that um, Arabic is the mother of all languages, and yeah. that all languages ultimately came from Arabic. And uh, that's more apparent currently in some languages than others, like Middle Eastern languages, as opposed to, for example, English, but one way of but where's the that evidence? If you
0: compare, where's the yeah. evidence that supports that? Because you just made a statement, right? You know, yeah, it is. So, where's where's the, where's the yeah, empirical evidence for this?
6: One of the things you can uh, do, one of my favorite things about studying Arabic is if you compare the Arabic of the Holy Quran, mm-hmm. the first half of the Holy Quran, it is almost identical. It's different in tone, but the words are exactly the same as the Arabic spoken now on TV. Mm-hmm. And written in books, but as you can if you compare that to other languages like Latin, and how much even in English, compared to the English of 200 years ago, if you look at read Shakespeare in English now, we now read Shakespeare in English with English translation. And so, for Arabic to have lasted compar- a comparatively huge amount of time, what is 1,400 years, and be equally understandable to someone now or to somebody at that time, is a testament to how Arabic has remained unchanged and has be, is the, therefore the ultimate vehicle and vessel to protect and preserve the message of the Holy Qur'an.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah, um, what are some of the unique features of the Arabic language that make it stand out from other languages?
6: One of the, and this, this comes out that when you study Arabic in particular, is the system of derivation. All languages have derivation. Words come from other words. But for example, English is a poor example of this because English is is a hybrid language in the sense that it's an amalgamation of many, many languages and linguistic influences. But Arabic has a verb, for example, to do or to write. There are 10 different forms and each form has a different meaning. And you can change that root verb because the Arabic is based on a root system. And I put it into any of the forms and each form will give you unique meaning and each form can be applied to each verb. And so then, very often what happens is when I see a word which I don't know, I, just from the root, and then also knowing the form, when you mix the root and the form together, you can work out what the word means even without seeing in context. Just, just seeing a word and not knowing what it means in English, you have to either know what the word means or you can read it in context. But you see an Arabic word, if you know your roots and you know your forms, you can work out just by seeing the word on its own with no context what it means just by analysing the letters in front of you.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, you know, what is the impact of Arabic then, if it being the mother of all languages, on other languages, both historically and actually, you know, in you know contemporary times?
6: Arabic has a huge influence in a lot of the languages of the Middle East. There are, of course, words, uh, languages like uh, Turkish and Afghani and then derivatives of Arabic like this there. There are other languages. Arabic has an influence which we know, according to Mondo's Scholarship on Virtually, all, all languages of the world have Arabic in them. And as time goes on, more and more, and scholarship and studying develops and historical records are found, more and more relationships and links have been developed between different languages. And this is the claim of the of the community because the Prophet be him, explained in his sallam explained to Rahman," about how all languages ultimately come from Arabic but it's considered a prophecy a lot of things and many things have been fulfilled but some prophecies relate to times later than us and we don't know exactly when that will happen
3: mm-hmm. but
6: it's the it's the claim of the community and muslims in general that Arabic is the first language revealed to mankind and the Quran itself makes the claim when it says lisan an it's a clear Tongue it's a clear language in which the Quran has been revealed and So while that hasn't fully been proved yet according to like general non-islamic scholarship when you study the internal witness Testimony of Arabic and you look at how it's structured and how logical and how incredible the system is that is itself is an indication That this language stands apart of all the languages it being of divine origin Mm
1: -hmm. So what are the challenges and opportunities of preserving and promoting the Arabic language in the 21st century?
6: As with every language, um, as with English, for example, there's uh, I use informal words every day, which I'm not using now because we're in this is a formal setting, and so Arabic <laughs> it. because it's in it. So Arabic is uh, there's 23 Arab countries uh, spread all over from Tunisia in the on the west of North Africa all the way to Yemen and Qatar in these countries on the right of the Arabian Peninsula, and each of them have their own dialect, mm-hmm. and so. People speak those, and no one speaks formal Arabic as their mother tongue, because what we consider formal Arabic now was actually was actually the dialect in the time of the Prophet Muhammad But then the Arab, the, the Arabic, uh, the, the Quranic text and the Hadith preserved that Hadith in uh, sorry preserved that language in time, and so that's like a frozen snapshot of the dialect of that time. So the constant evolution of dialects means that muslims have arabic speaking muslims have the challenge of preserving the language in its original form and not allowing that to be influenced by dialects i I face that challenge as well when i was when i speak arabic to people it's naturally influenced by the dialect of where you learn arabic from Mm. but the fact that it's lasted this long preserved in a way that no other language has been is again a testament to the fact that this language was specifically chosen by God Almighty to be a vessel to carry the message of God to mankind for the rest of time inshallah.
0: Mm. So Mustafa you know if if you know someone wanted to learn Arabic yeah I mean in what ways yeah. can you know can they learn the the language easily because say for instance if you're coming from the UK it's yeah. a different script what you know completely to uh, you yeah, know alien to you know to english uh, yeah. or anything like german french spanish latin um yeah. so yeah how would you go about it it's
6: a really good question i've been i've been through this kind of journey myself and i would tell everybody who wants to learn arabic this to be fair applies to every language but arabic of course it's is important it's greater than any other if you look at a, a child because we can't you know like a lot of us non arabs aren't a born being able to read arabic and we don't know much about it if you look at a child, the child, even its own mother tongue doesn't know any of the mother tongue mm-hmm. for the first uh, sizable portion of its life. But then just by listening <laughs> to others speaking and by association, if you keep pointing at the, the door and saying this is the door, mm-hmm. and again and again, eventually even a child of very, very limited intellect will realise this is a door and understand and make that connection in his mind. So if children can do that, we can definitely do that. The only difference is we don't all have parents or people around us speaking this language but with the advent of the internet you can in your spare time create that environment by watching children's cartoons and there are books out there that teach you uh well all the way from beginning to advanced if you use books in conjunction with using the benefit the blessing of mass media and, and the internet to consume arabic content you can definitely create that environment for you mm-hmm. that that children the arab children have and then and therefore grew up
0: knowing and being able how to read and speak your language. Mm, mm, yeah, very good, very good point. Is there? Well, Mustafa, uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
6: Thank you, likewise.
0: 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We do have a poll, yep. and I'm looking. Yeah, we've raised eyebrows. <laughs> Over Rana, because yeah. I actually posted a question to our producers who does come up with these questions. But what is our poll today? You know, uh, they they asked how fluent are you in Arabic, <laughs> right? So um, I, I mean, people have
1: people have been honest, right? Some, uh, no yeah. one is fully fluent, <laughs> right? I, I'm sure that there there, there are plenty of um, of our uh, I would say listeners as well and mm-hmm. people in our audience who are most likely flu- fully fluent in Arabic, mm-hmm. somewhat fluent which are 9% which is i think people just being humble okay right. somewhat fluent uh i know very little fair enough uh, that's 50% and uh i'm not fluent at all uh, which is 41% so. which is probably an honest answer in the sense that they 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 i'm sure they they can all mm. obviously read the Quran and uh, mm-hmm. recite the Holy Quran and w- they they read it with the translation but um, which is the important uh, part of it but yeah that's yeah, the
0: recitation of the Holy Quran in Arabic uh, is something that all yeah. true Muslims have to attain to yeah. um, and it's one of the prerequisites mm-hmm. but it's, it's something actually that uh, Mustafa was like saying you know with this last question how do you actually learn Arabic mm-hmm. and you know my mother tongue is Cantonese. Mm. And it's not because I grew up in this country. Right. So there's well, I I suppose there are quite a few Cantonese schools out there nowadays. Um, But in fact, the way that he he said that, how do people learn um, to speak their their mother tongue is exactly how I learned it, which was just listening to my parents Mm. and, you know, as a process of elimination, whenever they're talking about, are you hungry? Mm. Uh, then relating to, yeah, it's time to fo- it's time for food, right? Because funny enough, most things in Cantonese, even when a greeting is related to, have you ate? Mm. Have you ate, you know, yeah. greeting in the morning is, have you ate breakfast? Yeah. Afternoons, have you had lunch? Yeah. Dinner, have you had dinner? Yeah, as yeah. soon as you come in, have you had dinner? Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah. So that is our greeting, yeah. right? Everyone thinks, you know, it's the Mandarin, ni hao, yeah. but it's not. It's actually, for us Cantonese, it's the greeting of, you know, have you had breakfast? And so yeah. on and so forth um and yeah i could relate to exactly what mustafa was like saying because yeah. it's weird because my cantonese is pretty pristine because apart from when i go back to hong kong i seldom use it in this country mm. and in fact i'm a bit of a joke in terms of uh my my brethren yeah. in the village because they hear i come out with terminology which they don't understand yeah. Because it's actually from my mother. Uh, And so her Cantonese is at least 80 years old, right? And she grew up in the sticks, uh, we would call the Pind, Mm. right? In the village uh, on the New Territory's border with China. So that's why I always find it very bizarre that when I actually go over into China, the main spoken language is Mandarin, Mm. So it's something like uh, exactly what Mustafa was like saying: the the actual language of the Quran, the language of that uh, that Arabic is pristine,
1: yeah,
0: right. But depending on where you go, it's got there's variations in dialect. So because I come from the Canton area, Mm. people in China understand exactly what I'm saying,
3: yeah. But I
0: haven't got a clue. I've not got a clue what they're talking to me because they're speaking in Mandarin.
1: And just to build on what uh, Mustafa was saying in terms of, um, you know, one one uh, snapshot of the actual pristine or the the, the dialect of the Holy Quran being preserved. and it's the duty of he was saying it's like a duty for everyone to make sure that this is uh, th- this is preserved well mm-hmm. it is a duty but th- 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 there is i would say that, that there is also a promise that this is this is going to be preserved nonetheless. that mm-hmm. this language or this this form of the book this this book the holy quran is going to be preserved uh, till eternity so that that pristine or that pure form of it is is going to remain uh, mm-hmm. Nonetheless, whatsoever. Um, because I can see his.
0: Yeah. Line, I mean, I. Yeah, it's, it's far better for me to like yeah, poke anything at our oh, guests. Oh, yeah, they're the yeah. guests on the show. I mean, I I was, quite,
1: uh, that's what I was saying. I was building onto it uh, oh. into that sense that look, th- this is this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, on the other part, which I was very interested in, is regards to the question of uh, how do you learn it. Now, I can say I can say it for, from let's say from his uh, sort of background. Okay. Uh, I have seen people uh, with zero Arabic language uh, knowledge of the Arabic language, zero percent. Maybe just a oh, I've, I've I've read the Quran. I've read. Mm-hmm. I know duas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was all it was, right? But now, they're
0: most probably reciting by rote. Yeah, yeah? which is okay, no understanding yeah, of the well, understanding. Yeah,
1: but what they what they did was that let's say for instance, well, I have a syllabus, but no, this is the challenge the mm-hmm. language learning this language and this is the this is the key okay learning this language is the key to my to my career okay mm-hmm. so they dedicated pretty much all of their initial stages of their for instance their course or whatever uh to just learn that language as mm-hmm. if they made it as if it's, it's their ultimate goal mm-hmm. and believe you me you know they they were you know fluent in the sense that they were being recruited by the arabic desk mm-hmm. um for their work in two years Okay, so it's from starting from zero. In two years, you're being recruited to do work for the Arabic desk. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 the you know the effort and dedication that they just put into it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, well, this is the only thing I'm going to learn. They would put stickers on their walls mm-hmm. of um, you know words. They understood the as you know he, he touched upon the root forms mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, one one when I was studying at Lo, uh, SOAS as well, I did a bit of um, Arabic there um and one of the professors said look arabic is pretty much you know if you if you're good at maths you you would catch on to these like root forms and the grammar and all that stuff mm-hmm. so it, some people's minds work towards that and mm-hmm. it's easier for them to pick it up so you know this this was something that was very you know interesting i'm I'm pretty sure this is a guy who's um, who's gone through that as well so um yeah that's that's what uh, the the effort and dedication that people need to put in to make sure that they they pick up on this language.
0: Mm. I mean, that's the thing uh, when we say effort uh, and there is, I suppose, this optimum point in understanding, right? Uh, And I kind of like, I I don't know. I mean, I haven't reached that optimum point in terms of say recitation of the Holy Quran. For me, unfortunately, I'm like still the beginner, Hmm. right? Uh, In that poll, I would be in the kind of like 50%, if not the 41%, right? And it would be, I would only understand through the uh, transliteration, right? And plus the the, the translation of that verse to me. But then also, I've kind of like see that actually there's certain words which... Are familiar with familiar, yeah. but then depending, and it's something that Musta- uh, uh, Mustafa was saying. Depending on the context as well, that word changes. Yeah, right. So that's, it's, that's it's, he, he, what like he was touching reach. upon
1: was that in, in terms of if you if you know the forms, um that, as I said once again, it was that that argument about if you're good at. Maths, mm-hmm. um, you, you might be able to clock on to the form straight away. Okay, mm-hmm. some there's there's very I think there's a very I'm I'm not an expert in that sense, but there are a very few words which, uh, the, the if if you read it they, they might have only two words which are the, the core form, but usually every word has like three. Okay, mm-hmm. so once you understand the the core word, so the core the root word or the root three, mm-hmm. and you understand the 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 form, you can pretty much make up the mean you can understand uh, the meaning in terms of in. How it fits in accordance mm-hmm. to that to that form, so uh, that's what he was basically t- uh, touching upon. Now there was another way of, um, for instance, which I had seen. Uh, th- this is okay. This is one institution. How mm-hmm. they, how you, the effort that you need to make in one institution, which teaches you it for seven years. Then there is what I've seen in another, maybe more Westernized uh, institution, where people uh, go for B.A. Arabic, for instance, okay, mm-hmm. uh, as as a course. Um, so after. Th- Three year or two years of dedicated um, work in or study in that language, they stay one year abroad in a in a country. Um, yeah, it, jump in at yeah, the deep end. And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. That's where you know you're there now. This is yeah. you have to uh, you know when you say that you you create that mother tongue mm-hmm. uh, atmosphere. This is where it's going to be created. It's it is there where they speak the language. And that's the only way to get through. Mm. So um, yeah, and then within a year, they would, um, if they if they've if they're there seriously for that cause, mm-hmm. you know that's it. They've they've picked up the this new language, and uh, they're, they're well on their way towards whatever they want to do with it. Yeah, because I,
0: I've I've I mean yeah, I have a you know a passing knowledge of French and Spanish because they're yeah. very similar, yeah. and yeah, I spent literally a month in France, yeah. and the friends that I were with. They said, look, you know, what, are am gonna speak English to you. Yeah. And suddenly, because you are literally in the deep end, right? Yeah. You you're gonna sink. You have to yeah. you're gonna sink or swim. Yeah. Right. And you find that actually suddenly you do, you start thinking in that language yeah. and it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Because you're 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 visualizing yeah. stuff which you're 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 trying to talk about, right? Yeah. And so you, you make those kind of synaptic um Links exactly. And yeah. That's so this how is when you works, I suppose. yeah. This is when you
1: pretty much reconnect to that. You know, oh, this is wh- where I learn my mother mother tongue. Right, mm-hmm. it's like a baby who's like, this is the only thing he can hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, if if he need, for instance, he, he needs to get something. Or I'm saying he, but a baby needs to get something done from their parents. Mm-hmm. So he has to rely on what he's heard. No, but that's yeah. rubbish, right? right, right?
0: Uh, <laughs> a baby just cries. Yeah.
1: No, no, no. no. And you, then your you, parents... don't know, you don't know about the modern babies, man. They don't just cry. And they cry.
0: And then, look, as as a real baby, right, you cry, and then your your parents know it's one of three things. Food, wind, or sleep. That's it. Well, it, could, it, could, it, could,
1: it could be baby shark as
3: well.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, we're joined by our next caller of the day, uh, Sahab Akmal. Um, so, he is also a student in J- uh, Jamia, UK. As al- peace and blessings be upon you, Saab. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Wa So, we're talking about uh, Arabic, uh, the mother of all tongues. Now, what is Minan u Rahman?
7: Bismillah ar-Rahman. So, Minan u Rahman was actually a book written by the Promised Messiah in 1895. Okay. And in this book, he has set out the claim that Arabic is, in fact, the first language taught by God Almighty himself. Mm
3: -hmm.
7: And also that it is the mother of all languages. Um, But it's important to remember that he did not just make this claim. Mm -hmm. his claim was actually based on scholarly research. And he presented many arguments to support this claim. Mm -hmm. And all of this has been compiled in the book Minanur Rahman. And in this book, the Prophet Muhammad mainly uh, has presented five characteristics of Arabic, um, which cannot be found in any other language.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: Yeah, um, so who was Muhammad Ahmad Mazhar and what contribution has he made to establish the claim that Arabic is the mother of all languages?
7: Yeah, so uh, Muhammad Ahmad Mazar Sahib actually was an expert in the field of language. And he spent 20 years uh, researching in this field. And in his lifetime, he was able to trace back around 25 languages back mm-hmm. to the Arabic language. And he has written many books on this as well. And um, <clears throat> I myself actually have also been able to look uh, to look into some of these. And um, I must say that the evidence is really uh, astonishing. Mm-hmm. And it's really surprising to see that... Um, the amount of similarities which can be found in these languages with the Arabic language. And uh, one particular interesting thing which I would like to mention from the works of uh, Muhammad Ahmad Sahib, is that uh, in his book, English Traced Back to Arabic, he writes the following. The structure of Arabic roots is so unparalleled that it is impossible that Arabic could itself have been derived from any other language according to the holy quran language is as old as the creation of man as allah states he has created man and taught him plain speech so in and in, um, in other words the creation of man has been linked to the teaching of speech and so we believe that this language which was taught at the very start was in fact the arabic language
0: mm-hmm. um so yeah, are there any other languages Uh, about which it has been claimed in history that they themselves are the mother of all languages.
7: Yes, so uh, there have been actually uh, various claims made in this regard in the past, and three especially uh, which I found in my own uh, research. Mm -hmm. And um, first of all, uh, Sanskrit, which is known as the ancient language of India. Mm
3: -hmm.
7: Hindus, uh, Hindus actually believe that this Sanskrit was the mother of all languages. Uh, and the second one, which I found was um, a claim made by an Indian writer called Muthohil. And he made the claim that Tamil, which is uh, mainly spoken in India, Sri Lanka, and Singapore, that Tamil is the mother of our languages. And the third one, which I found uh, is that during the Renaissance, it was the aim of several scholars to prove that uh, Hebrew language was the mother of our languages. And, um, yeah, so that's the main three which I found.
0: Mm. But I you know I would also you know throw it out in the conversation that would it not be uh based on empirical evidence? So say for instance a civilization you find remains of that civilization and depending on where they are in terms of history wouldn't that indicate you know what they were talking? That 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 language would have come you know, before other languages?
7: Yeah, so um, <clears throat> if you allow me, I would like to share, uh, because the Promised Messiah has actually dealt, uh, dealt with this topic, mm-hmm. and uh, he, uh, I have actually a quote, quotation of the Promised Messiah and uh, the Promised Messiah wrote that many people have spent their lives in such research and have made great efforts to discover which language is the mother of tongues, but as their efforts were not rightly directed nor were they bestowed the relevant capacity by God Almighty. They could not achieve success. An additional reason was that they were prejudiced against Arabic and did not pay due attention to it. Thus, they failed to discover the truth. Now we have been guided by the holy word of God Almighty, the Holy Quran, and that the truth is that Arabic is the mother of all languages, and all other claimants are in error. So, to summarize, the Promised Messiah, Islam, actually explains that despite the fact that people have made a lot of effort in this field, they did not achieve success, and the reason for that is that they were actually biased against the Arabic language. But now, in this era, God Almighty has shown that it was in fact the Arabic language which was the mother of tongues. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
7: So, if someone wants
1: to learn, oh, sorry, mate, uh, what miracles has the Promised Messiah, Islam, shown?
7: With regards to the Arabic language yes so first of all I would like to point out that the promised Messiah was born in India and his mother tongue was Urdu Mm -hmm. so uh, but as for the Arabic language he did not speak it and only had some basic lessons um, from a teacher now there are three miracles that I would uh, particularly want to mention regards to Arabic the first one is that the promised Messiah Islam was uh, reviewed 40,000 Arabic words in a single night by Allah the Almighty. Mm. So the Prophet Islam essentially learned the Arabic language directly from God. And the second miracle is that after having been taught by Allah the Almighty, he wrote over 20 books in Arabic, and he wrote a tafsir called I'jaz masih mm. And this is an Arabic tafsir in which he made, an, um, he made an open challenge to the world, especially the Arab world, and the challenge was to write a more eloquent and comprehensive tafsir in Arabic than their own, than his own. Sorry. And the, tru- and the truth is that no one was able to do this. And why is this such a big miracle? Like I said, Arabic was not the language of the Prophet Muhammad and yet he was challenge- challenging the Arabs, those who have been speaking Arabic their entire lives, mm. to write a more eloquent tafsir than in their uh, in their very own language, actually. Mm. Uh, and the third miracle was that uh, a, a day before Eid al-Adha, which is known as the Eid of Sacrifice, the promised Messiah received a rele- uh, revelation that tomorrow you will deliver an eloquent speech in Arabic. Okay. Now, the promised Messiah had never delivered an Arabic speech, let alone a extempore speech.
3: Mm.
7: However, on this particular day, the day of Eid al-Adha, while he was about to deliver his speech, he received direct revelation from Allah the Almighty, and the Arabic words spontaneously flowed from his mouth yep. while he was delivering the speech. And this today uh, has become known as uh, Khutbah Ilhamiya, which means the Revealed Sermon. Mm.
3: Mm.
0: Well, very succinct words there. Thank yeah. you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, sir. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Jazakallah. <laughs> Thank, Thank you very much. much. alaikum 208 or tweet us at voiceofislamuk. Now, in our intro to Arabic, uh, the mother of all tongues, we quoted that, you know, in chapter 12, verse 3 of the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says, we have revealed it, the Quran in Arabic, that you may understand. I mean, you know, is there any anything further that we can add to this? Uh, commentary.
1: Yeah, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him, explain the above verse in his five volume English commentary of the Holy Quran. He wrote, the word Arab conveys the sense of fullness, abundance and clearness and the Arabic language is, co- is so called because its roots are innumerable and are full of meaning and because of it, uh, because It is most expressive, eloquent and comprehensive. It possesses suitable words and phrases for the full expression of all sorts of ideas and shades of meaning. Any topic can be discussed in this language with a precision and thoroughness unmatched in any other. European scholars have had to testify to the fact that the Arabic language is complete in respect of its roots. It consists of hundreds of thousands of roots which are pregnant with the vast variety of meaning. Ibn Jinni. An eminent, uh, an eminent linguist has advanced the claim in the name of his teacher, Abu Ali, that even the letters of the Arabic language possess clear and definite meanings. For instance, he declared that the letters meme, laam, and gaf, in whatever combination they may occur, ex- express the idea of power, mm. which is more or less uh, common to all the world... Uh, to, to all the words that are formed with these letters or are derived from this root in the previous verse of the Quran, uh, In the previous verse the Quran was called the book Which implied a prophecy that it would ever continue to be preserved in the form of a book in present in the present verse It has been called the Quran meaning the book that is read uh, That is read which constitutes a prophecy that it will be very widely read and studied in fact uh, which no opponent of Islam can deny, that no other book is so wide, widely and frequently read as the Quran. Professor Noldick says, <clears throat> since the use of the Quran is public worship in schools and otherwise, is much more extensive than, for example, the reading of the Bible in most Christian countries, it has been truly described as most wild, the, as the most widely read book in existence. Thus, the giving of these two names of the Word of God revealed the Holy Prophet, viz., the Book and the Quran, signifies that this final law of God uh, would be preserved both by means of the pen and tongue. The verse also hints that if the Quran had not been revealed in a tongue which possessed the qualities of, exp- of expressing all ideas with perfect ease and clearness, as the Arabic language does, or if it had not been widely and constantly read as the Quran is in accordance to the pro- with the prophecy implied in its name, people would not have identified by it as much as they do as they have done and still do hmm.
0: so if we look at that right and we like just have a you know just a quick discussion yeah, I mean yeah you know, we have revealed it the Quran in Arabic that you may understand yeah, and you know, just simply you know the 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 literal translations in uh into English from Arabic is a yeah, you know, the book and the Quran. Yeah, and you you then get an understanding from this, um, this treatise from, uh, his holiness. Yeah, the the actual the, the depth of the lexicon of Arabic. Yeah, no, uh, and it, the different layers, the, right? Yeah. of meaning that there are. Yeah, in just the one word. Exactly, and you, you know um, the
1: Sahib uh, Akmal Sahib when he was mm. uh, mentioned, he said that when he was discussing, he said that the promised Messiah demonstrated a miracle that he was uh, revealed forty thousand root words okay mm-hmm. um of the arabic language which is in, in 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 one night and as as we've seen through the research which we have uh, just gone through there's hundreds and thousands of uh, root words of this language so for uh just the the, the depth as we can just say see is uh, is enormous mm-hmm. uh, of the you know the
0: the, the vocab and the and the various shades of each, and it's it's occurring yeah. to me actually what why you made the um, assertion earlier on that if you had a mathematical brain, yeah. you could you know, get a grasp of it, get a grasp of it, because you know, I'm just like thinking right, okay, you've got a hundred thousand root words, yeah. right. Then you have form, and the, the, this this plays to add as, to that. Yeah. So the permutations of that, yeah. it's almost like stats. The, exactly, and the,
1: this 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 works uh, beautifully in the uh, in the in the in the composition of the way the Holy Quran is um com is written in its uh, in its in its text form. Um, you know, it's why does why is this book regarded as as a as a miracle in itself? The way that the um the 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 beautiful meanings or the the description is mm-hmm. uh, explained in such a you know poetic form, mm-hmm. due to the fact that uh, the you know the, the the root the root causes uh, the, sorry the root causes the the form the root forms allow for that poetic, mm-hmm. uh, rhyming to build, mm-hmm. and that's that's what makes the Quran you know you've expressed such a beautiful and divine word. In such a beautiful and divine way that's Mm. what makes it that that is the miracle you know and that's Mm. the that was the claim of the prophet system that look if i'm if i'm lying about this book why don't you produce a single verse of its quality um to prove that i'm a liar and you know people made you know the people did actually try they say okay you know what we we accept this challenge of yours Mm -hmm. um i don't exactly know the the exact people who they were i can't Mm -hmm. exactly uh, refer to them but they they came up with absolutely ridiculous um Verses which they they couldn't compete at all with the quality of the Quran, mm-hmm. so that was his that was that was his uh, you know way of saying look I am I was uh, re- revealed this this language uh, sorry not this language this this book um, by God Almighty mm-hmm. and the proof is that it's unique no one can mm-hmm. ever ever contest uh, in mm-hmm. its in its quality.
0: I mean, if if you were and that's why I was like with all well both our guests, yeah. You know, some of the questioning was like. The empirical evidence, yeah. the empirical evidence, and in a sense, it's a bit like when you're a non believer, yeah, that step of that leap of faith, yeah. right, to becoming a believer, Yep. Yeah. because there is sometimes no empirical evidence, yeah, right.
1: So you have to trust it, that so you really have to is, trust, trust it, it that, yeah. that
0: it is. And I know, I know that, that sounds um what's the word, a bit hollow yeah. uh, to to someone who's like maybe rooted in yeah. facts and figures, right? But actually, when you hear, not myself, right? Yeah. But when you hear <laughs> a really beautiful recitation, right, the mm. lava of the Holy Quran, it's so melodic, mm. right? It's more so than, say, for instance, if I were to compare via v, right to, to say say for instance a song mm. right the hear in the charts or whatever that, that relies on music giving it musicality yeah giving it a melody and then yeah you have the words which are a rhyme so to speak right but the actual recitation of the holy quran when you hear it done well transports you yeah elevates you yeah right to a spiritual place of which thereby you think well is that not proof therein Mm. right that actually just reciting the Holy Quran gives you actually lifts yourself to that spiritual um, domain whereby you are communing with your creator Uh,
1: you're you're, you're communing with your creator and you're 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 listening to his his language Mm. OK, that that's the, the point is he 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 it's it's his, you know, what how he spoke mm-hmm. to the most, uh, you know, as we believe the most important person in the history of 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 mankind, uh, mm-hmm. how he communicated to him. That's his language. So this is where the whole thing about the, you know, the the mother tongue, the mother of the the mother of all languages comes from mm-hmm. where it it has to be proven, it has to be correct. That the language which the Creator uh, used to communicate with the person for whom He created the universe was this la- was this language, the Arabic mm-hmm. language, and for it to be the you know um, for Him to say like we have revealed the book in in, uh, in Arabic for you to understand, mm-hmm. um, th- 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 this is where that you know this is where you have because to, yeah. I
0: mean that in, that 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 surah is very if you look at the English very yeah. basic, right? Yep. But actually, when you hear it, it's like I say for me uh and I'm someone who does you know not really truly understand yep. the arabic the depth of the Arabic meaning mm. right within each word, but for me, even you know when I hear it, yeah, it does it just transports you to that area whereby you know you are. Uh, on this spiritual plateau. Yeah, right?
1: sp- spiritual plateau,
0: yeah. Whereby, actually, now I'm ready, right? It's it's almost like uh, it is it's a communion with Allah Tala, right? Yeah. And you're actually saying, look, you know, I'm reciting these words so that, therefore, you, my creator, can recognize that I'm trying to get in touch with you. Mm. And then, hey-ho, you've made that connection. And yeah. then you have your own, right, actually, today I'm, I'm praying for this. Yeah. Yeah, peace in Palestine. Right, mm. peace in Palestine. That's what we're we're praying for. Yeah, but it's to get to. You can't just go, right. Allah, can you hear me? I want this. Yeah, it has to be through
1: some 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 like structure, yeah. a structural way to get to it. Yeah. But look, it it, it it you learn the stru- the structure with time, okay, and with mm-hmm. with maturity and with um with with education with with a, with a with a drive to actually learn it so not it's not necessary that if you if you if you believe that god is your creator or allah is your creator that as soon as you've understood that oh god i better build that structure in me right now otherwise i can't communicate mm-hmm. with the with with my with my creator you, you you have to understand that you will get there with time and with mm-hmm. your own uh hard work and dedication for the meanwhile do what it is mm. what is required in terms of make make your best effort mm. to communicate with i him. think
0: even in 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 our community the uh muslim community our uh, fourth Khalifa, yeah. uh may allah be pleased with him said that in one question and answer session that i remember uh, that uh, and, and the question was look you know i can't speak arabic yeah. does that you know what, what does, happens is to that me is then? that is that an obstacle for me yeah, to is yeah an exactly yeah, yeah. and i think you know uh, uh, from what I remember as the answer from His Holiness was that no, it doesn't because if you can read the Quran in your own language to start yeah. off with that is the best exactly. because you need to understand what you want what you're saying yeah. to your creator although it has as quote and unquote lost something in translation yeah. but at least it is something it gets you there that's a good there. step
1: and as, as long as you trust that as you said you know the, this element of trust you have to trust um, mm-hmm. that Believe exactly. So as long as you have that element of trust in what you are reading is done with the right intentions mm-hmm. to make you find the essence which is in the actual words, mm-hmm. uh, you you will always see it as that. Okay. Mm. So it, unless you, uh, if you just want to be critical for, of the translation, go ahead. Be be critical of the translation. That's your way. But as long as you. Your intention was to create, uh, to connect with God Almighty through this medium that's available to you. Mm-hmm. That will be, you know, it will be an essential guide for that. So, mm-hmm.
0: that, I mean, and, you know, we're coming to the end of the poem, but just quickly, if we look at the Holy Quran in chapter 14, verse 5, and the commentary once again, uh, in this chapter, it says, And we have not sent any messenger except with the language of his people in order that he might make things clear to them then Allah lets go astray whom he wills and guides whom he wills. And he is the mighty, the wise. Now the second caliph, may Allah be pleased with him, also explained about this verse in his five-volume commentary. The verse does not mean that a divine messenger should receive his revelation only in the language of his people. What it means is that the major and fundamental part of his revelation must be in the tongue of his people. Otherwise, the conveying of his message to those who are its first recipients would become difficult. Occasionally, however, a prophet may receive a revelation in a foreign tongue. In fact, such exceptional revelation would serve as a divine sign or miracle. It is wrong to infer from this verse, as some Christian writers have done, that the message of the holy prophet, peace and blessings be upon him was confined to Arabs. Such an assumption is forcibly uh, belied by other verses in the Quran in which the Prophet is clearly and and unequivocally declared to be Prophet sent for the whole world. Uh, For instance, chapter 7, verses 159, chapter 34, in verse uh, 29. Not only does the Quran claim a universal mission for the Holy Prophet, But the Prophet himself also claimed to be a messenger for all mankind. For instance, he is reported to have said, I have been sent to the black and the red, meaning the whole of mankind. Similarly, he said, I have been raised for all mankind according to yet another uh, tradition, Sunnah. He is reported to have said, I have been sent to the whole creation. So, that you know, actually goes to what yep. we were saying, Rana, wasn't it, really? That although this is the divine language, mm. Arabic, if you were to counter that, you say, well, actually, then how can u- Islam be universal? Mm. Because not everyone's speaking Arabic.
1: Yeah, but then again, uh, the, the, it's, it, the reason why you would counter it in the sense that just because it's... Um, it's it's written in one language does not mean that the ma- the the manual that it presents isn't universal the manual mm-hmm. it presents is universal and um you know there are so many things you know so many times this 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 question of okay uh, if that manual if that that uh, law book or whatever is um, highway code yeah, yeah this this code highway code is confined to that particular region or that particular language or people who speak that language um, whenever they've tried to tackle it, uh, they, the the Quran always seems to have an answer. No, no, mm-hmm. even in this day and age, in this setting, in this um, environment, in, in people from whatever background, it mm-hmm. fits. Uh, it, fits the glove. If you, if it fits the glove in a in a universal and way. Uh, manner as well. Mm-hmm. It, wherever the Quran goes, it will fit. So, so, you know, the, the, these are like more of, uh, you know, debates just for the sake of debates, or debates, let's have a debate yeah. and prove that no, 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 it isn't. It's, it's outdated. No, it's, mm-hmm. it's never it's always outdated. there.
0: Yeah. But that brings us to the end of Monday's edition of The Drive Time Show. I'd like to thank my co-host, Imam Rana Atta, uh, our technician here, uh, and the producers, which was myself and Imam, Imam Imran Akram. So that's the uh, Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show.